I forgot to get the banjo and I imagine you haven't got your instrument so we won't be able to do the lead-in music. We'll just have to, we'll have to edit that on afterwards. Yeah, we'll just have to put it on the end. We'll, uh, hopefully hopefully we, get some, we can find a guest who's on here who's got a banjo or a ukulele and oh, uh, we, can, we can... Yeah, it's a shame we don't have lyrics. You know, if we had lyrics to the start in, we could, um, you know, you could just sing the lyrics a cappella style like we did when we did... Uh, like a barbershop quartet type of thing. <laughs> um, it could be. Um, it could be like. Well, we we have sung on the podcast before when we did the little snippet of just the two of us. Um, so we'll need to figure out some lyrics. So it's not just. Well, it's, it's, it's not just the two of us because today. It's not. Got, it's not. We've got everyone. Yeah. It, it's you know, and, and I thought you know Matt and I were thinking about this for a while about doing some sort of live podcast where we could do over zoom get you know questions in about you know what's happening in grain so it's not just the two of us talking about market updates and and whatnot mm. so we so we get a bit interactive and we thought you know we're probably we're probably too cool for tiktok and and spaces seem to be the hip thing hip and happening uh so let's let's see if this works if it doesn't work well we're, we've not wasted any of our boundless resources and <laughs> Boundless budget. I tell you, um, one of the advantages of doing it in this fashion is I don't have to look at your fashion on uh, on, on Zoom. You know, it's, I can we can just do it listening and talking rather than having to look and see what dreadful outfits you're wearing or you sitting there in your Rangers football top or something like that. You know. Well, we just gotta gotta do what we gotta do, and uh, you know, some style is lost on some people. <laughs> There we go. Look, um, right on. Well, so let's let's start it off with the, the regular way. Let's do, let's do a bit of a market update. Sounds good. And, and we we'll, we'll we'll get people to jump in as and as and when. If somebody wants to put their hand up, you can send me a. You can jump in my DMs, as the young ones say, um, or or put your hand up or something. I don't know how it works. I think I think I think you can put your hand up on this actual. Um, on this actual spaces uh, things, and we can bring them in. So we'll just have to suck it and see and see how we go. But let's roll let's roll into a bit of an update first on where we're sitting, and then we'll just invite questions and see if we see if we've got any brave people that'll come through and ask a question or join in and have a chat. Right, or jump onto it. What's happening in cattle? Uh, oh, look, the market's kind of trending sideways a little bit in terms of the young uh, Eastern Young Cattle Indicator. It's just you know. Hovering around that eleven twenty area, um, we have seen in in the last week or so we've seen heavy steers creep back up again. So, which I, I kind of was a bit surprised by that, given some of the processor issues we had in January, and that I think that's kind of continued on into early Feb, just with with labour. They're getting through it, I think, and it's starting to come back. But um, the heavy steers kind of crept back to that four fifty cents a kilo live weight. So I, I would imagine with that coming back up, it's going to give people you know, continued confidence um, in, in buying the young and store cattle uh, into this year. It's, um, it looks like we're going to have another reasonably robust season for cattle prices uh, as, the, as the year's shaping up so far. But what else is happening? Sheep, slaughter, COVID, is that still impacting stuff? 
Uh, slaughter's getting back on track um, for at least the East Coast lamb. I mean, in the West, there wasn't a big problem with... Um, I mean, they're still having issues with staff, like like a lot of processes out in the West, but they haven't had the types of uh, disruptions that we've seen in the Southeastern states with workers not coming up and having, uh, you know, 30 to 50% of workforce just not showing up. Um, but that seems to be coming back on track. Uh, for the lamb this week, the... Um, we're kind of back to, uh, um, in terms of weekly volumes, we're back to, you know, five-year uh, average levels or just short of that, which is quite good um, to see early February numbers for lamb just about 2% under the five-year trend. So back on track for lamb. Um, mutton has increased in terms of mutton sheep slaughter has increased week on week. We saw about a 26% gain from last week. Um, but this, but mutton's still um, below trend uh, by about. Um, oh, if you look at the five-year trend, they're thirty-seven percent below. So it looks like more kill space has been put put aside for lamb rather than mutton. Uh, and in terms of beef on the east coast, again, a big gain week on week, forty percent higher than last week. So we, you know, they are making inroads uh, in terms of getting back to full production, but uh, the beef. Slaughter is still thirty percent below the five-year trend, um, so uh, you know, getting there, but um, you know, chugging along. We updated the processor margin model for January for beef too, so that shows um, that shows a, a loss of three seventy or thereabouts uh, for the month of January for beef processors according to the model. Um, so they're the they're the exciting things for this week in terms of livestock. Um, what's going on in grains? Grains. Probably a bit of excitement, you know, you know, not not as boring as it has been for the last couple of weeks, apart from Ukraine and whatnot. Uh, the USDA report. Was do you mean out. you don't you don't mean the Ukraine, do you? The Ukraine, sorry. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it didn't really make a big difference to wheat. Wheat's just trading in its own sort of space at the moment. There's there's not a huge amount of new information on wheat. The only thing that really stood out to me on wheat again, is the same thing we've been saying for the last year, is that that stocks the use ratio of the main exporters, which is basically what I consider to be the available wheat in the world, is the lowest since, you know, 2007. And it's really edging towards that. It won't take much to push it down way below that. And if you remember rightly, that was when wheat prices went absolutely bonkers. Just to just just before you go ahead, so you're talking about look, it's not the whole stocks to use because that's obviously higher because of the you know. Yeah, the well, stock, stock, stocks to use around the world is healthy if you include China. Yep, but, and India, and India, and, and, and India, yeah. Mm. Uh, but if you start to look at you know how much is stored in in China, and I use in in quotation marks on paper because mm. the reality is that we're not sure how much of that is really in existence. And uh, when you start to drill down and you say, well, the available stocks around the world are basically coming from the exporters, you know, Argentina, Ukraine, oh, sorry, sorry, the, the Ukraine, the Ukraine yep. uh, Russia, us, USA, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and it's really low. And like it will only take, you know, a couple of hiccups in those eight exporters to really hamper, uh, hamper wheat prices. And, and if you remember rightly back to that time, that was a time that resulted in a lot of riots around the world because food prices got too high. Um, the Arab uh, uprisings, you mean? Arab Springs, all that kind yep. of stuff. Mm. And look, oil seeds are probably the, the more interesting one because in South America, you know, 
a lot of uh, declines in uh, in production in South America. You know, Brazil down five million tons month on month. Paraguay the same. Argentina, eh, not Paraguay the same. Paraguay two million. Uh, Argentina a million and a half. Probably lower than what it should be, and it probably will fall further. And I think that's probably what is is going to be the the big talking point for next month is what happens in South America. And uh, and yeah, that's that's largely what's happening. I think the other thing, again, is this thing we're trying to drill home for months is this increasing costs. You know, and it's uh, we we spoke obviously earlier on this week with uh, Chris about fertilizer prices, and and the reality is that those fertilizer prices overseas might not flow through to uh, the prices that we receive in Australia in time for us. Mm. If it and if it does, it's probably not going to be huge falls. Well, um, you know, you know how it is, though, mate, with these um, fertilizer importers. You know, if they've imported it at higher prices, they they can't just drop the price to um, to reflect the, the market. Yeah, you know, the global market. They've got to they've got to clear their stocks, of course. Well, it seems to be happening in New Zealand, apparently. But anyway, that's uh, don't want to get a lot another lawsuit. <laughs> um, the uh, but the, the other thing is even, even things like high fuel prices. You know, we're talking about fuel prices at the moment that are, you know, massively through the roof. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got the highest diesel price in Australia since '08, and so that's another cost which is going to go through to growers. Chemical costs, labour costs. You know, it's all all there, and and we really do need a good grain price in order to make margins work. I I, um, I saw a, a chat. I think you put on Twitter showing that Brent crude versus wheat and, uh, you know, going back to about 2000, I think it was. And and it looked as though there was a fairly close kind of corresponding um, movement there for the, for the most part with, with uh, Brent crude and wheat pricing. Is it, did one? Well, fo- I, well, I wouldn't have put it up if there wasn't a relationship, would I? I'd be a bit, uh, be a bit, be a bit stupid if I just put up two things comparing each other that didn't actually <laughs> show anything. <laughs> You could have um, you could have put up there and said, "Look at this; it doesn't show anything." Look, look at this, this. Is this is look at this? This is nonsense. Yeah. But, but um, did, was there anything like what's does that is that? Uh, there's, there's a bit of logic in it, really. Yeah. Um, you know, Brent is obviously crude oil; it's turned into diesel. Uh, but we also have a relationship between sort of crude oil and ethanol, and in the US, ah, yeah. Yeah. US. Yeah. U.S. a huge proportion of corn, like forty percent of corn, give or take, is turned into ethanol. And so when crude oil prices go up, ethanol goes up, and then there's a direct relationship between ethanol and, uh, corn. and corn pricing. Corn. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm with you. And yep. then there's the direct link between uh, corn and wheat, so they follow one another. And so it's a bit like if uh, if a, a butterfly chi- fla- a chain, a chi- but, but, but butterfly flaps its wing in Saudi Arabia. And then uh, we get higher wheat prices, in theory, potentially. Yeah. Touch chaos. wood. Chaos. Uh, that's that that old statement that butterfly flapping the wings comes out of chaos mathematics. And in the, I remember I studied that in the uh, I think it was the late eighties, early nineties. Had a maths teacher that was very excited. Oh, so about that it. that must have been when you were what forty. <laughs> yeah, I was actually just finishing high school. So, um, but that that it's a bit like a chain event. Then you're basically saying that one leads to the next one. Yeah, effectively, there's there's a linkage between them. All, all commodities tend to have a certain amount of fungibility mm. in them, and that they're fairly replaceable, or they or they have you know interconnected relationship. 
So yeah, that's pretty much it. Like that's the that's the big things at the moment. I think the other thing is probably interest rates are going to be interesting over over, over the coming period. You got anything on that? Because because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking to buy a new house. Yeah, and and so I want to know what your view is as an ex FX trader. Yep. Uh, well, I think the US will be the lead in this one. So they've already started to um, indicate what they're doing with regards to rates and the US yield curve. At the, what they call the yield curve is basically the the interest rates as they go out in time. So sh- shorter dated rates like um, like uh, deposits and bills, you know, ninety day bills, and then it goes out to a three year and five year bond and ten year bond in terms of what kind of yield they offer. So that that curve has kind of gone back to for a, for a good while through um, through uh, when, when the economy was in a poor state due to COVID. Um, that yield curve was inverse, so that further rates out were, were lower than current rates. But um, we've gone back to a more normalised scenario now where the market is expecting higher rates into the future. Uh, and so that can affect borrowing and it certainly affects if you're going to fix your rates, that, that's where that comes in. Um, but so that the view is that uh, the US are entering into an increasing phase and I think Australia won't be far behind them. Um, but the key to watch here is the CPI. No, he's gone. Little trap. There's a little trap there for the live stuff. Turn your phone off, Matt. Um, Jesus, bloody Brad. unprofessional, aren't we? Um, so the um, yeah, getting back to it, the, the CPI is what the RBA in Australia looks at, and and they've basically got a mandate that they try and keep the Australian CPI between two to three percent annually. Um, so if it's starting, if, if the, you know, the, things are starting to heat up within the Australian economy and that interest rates, uh, sorry, inflation rate is creeping up, that'll be the trigger for them to start to raise rates. I think it's probably likely we might see something towards the mid, mid part or the latter part of this year. We might see the beginnings of a, of a small interest rate increase, but generally what they tend to do is they, they go slowly, slowly at a time so that they don't... Um, do too much damage to the economy so it'll be something like a quarter of a percent increase or maybe even less than that at 0.15 as they begin to to signal that they're starting an interest rate a raising phase so interest rate rises yeah the, but i don't think in the, I don't, in the coming time i don't think we're going to see eight, eight, 18 percent you heard it here first <laughs> i don't think we're going to get as high as that and certainly um given the level of um debt, particularly household debt in terms of debt to incomes, that's much higher nowadays than what it was back in the late 80s, 90s, when we saw those interest rates up at 18%. So we don't need to have big increases to interest rates to start to um, get people to slow down in their in their kind of consumption activity and their spending and to tighten their belts. I think, you know, uh, there's much more um, responsiveness now in terms of how people behave if interest rates start going up, I think we'll see uh, it having an impact much, much earlier just because of how indebted people are, I think. We've got a, yeah, hand, so, we have a hand up there. I'm just trying to watch this as we go, but I wasn't sure if a hand popped up, but it doesn't look like it. Anyway. Well, I tried to I tried to invite uh, Martin Murray oh, yeah. on to give us, uh, and uh, he's still not invi- accepted the uh, invite. I might see if uh, Yeti, can come on. Uh, I'll send him an invite. It'll be good to hear what's happening in his sector. But we put I put two invites out and uh, see how we go. They might not. We can't force people into it, but you know this is the first stage, and hopefully, as we get 
better at this and people get used to it, they might be more prepared to come on and have a chat and to, um, to ask a question. Oh, here we've got another speaker, Yeti. So, uh, Yeti Capital 99. Uh, give, us, give us an intro. Who, who are you, mate? Okay. Hey, guys. How y'all doing? We're good. good We're thanks. good. Thanks for, thanks for being the uh, first cab off the rank. Yeah, yeah I really, the, 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 I, I'm really enjoying your call so far. A lot of good humor in it, making me smile. So uh, fun to listen to and enjoying it. Fantastic. And, and, you, and, and Yeri, your background is uh, equities and resources. Okay, so right? so it's it's a it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, I grew up on a farm in Southwest Kansas. And uh, we're, we're right next to the Colorado border. And this was basically the spot that people um, were coming out to in the early 1900s when all the other farm ground was already spoken for. This so, was, so, 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 so you, where do you live just now? The, this is out near Dodge City in the southwest part of Kansas. So it must so, be, what so, is it so, now so, about 11 so, o'clock your time, 11 o'clock night time your time? It's, so, uh, so, you're still, so, you're, so you're still living in Kansas now? Yeah, it's 11.15 uh, p.m. right now. So, so yeah, back to what this place is. Um, people were, were seeking opportunity. I think you had higher grain prices that, that you could still gamble on growing a crop in the desert. Um, at that point in time, there wasn't irrigation like, like we have today. But then again, the irrigation that we have today is going away. So um, kind of the same dynamic coming back into play. But yeah, so there's a lot of history here with the Dust Bowl. Um, it's known for wheat and milo. And we do grow corn with the irrigation, but the water is getting down to levels where some of these fields, we only pre-water or water once during the season. And then we're just crossing our fingers that we get a rain or two to, to make the crop, which we've had a lot of luck in the last, I'd, I'd say the last five to 10 years. But um, there's periods we'll, we'll get, uh, very little rain in 2011. We had about an inch and a half the entire year. So there's a lot of risk out here um, going forward. But that's a bit of the background of, of where I come from. And then as far as some of the other stuff, I went on to work at Bear Stearns for a bit as an intern before it blew up. And <laughs> yeah, big mess there. And then I worked at a uh, freight car company that made coal rail cars they made 80 percent of the north american coal rail cars and that got me into uh the coal sector and that has a lot of value because it spills over into the cost curves of, of a lot of the other resources so that was starting to give me insight into other markets and over time i just kind of broadly added to the resource uh, uh sector as i could and knowing a little bit about a lot of them is, is, help, is helpful in a sense of um, kind of keeping your, your uh, finger on the pulse of the global economy, if you will. So I see a lot of value in that. And I've developed a skill set with the idea in mind that these resources are providing um, a lot of economic value. So are you, Yeti, are you, are you trading kind of commodities from where you are there or are you farming or what, what, what's your actual kind of role and what, what's the interest in listening to what two, um, two clowns from Australia got to say about agricultural markets? Well, sure, y'all grow a lot of wheat there and uh, that's something we do here. So, you know, I like to understand the markets that we're in. 
Um, so, so go back to the question real quick. I didn't quite catch all that. Um, in terms of like the interest, the interest in listening to our podcast from over there uh, in the US, what's the mm -hmm. like? Are you listening in just out of general interest, or you got a you know, have you got a commodity trading aspect that you're looking at just to give you some more information what's going on or you're farming okay. there as well? Yeah. Okay. So, so I spent a short amount of time in, in New York City as an analyst at Pyre Energy Group and uh, I was doing grains there for about 10 months, not a whole lot of time there. So what, again, what we have here is irrigation declining and I'm looking at a future that, that isn't here. So uh, Twitter is a space where... I feel I can I can close the gap on on ten months of professional experience. Um, it's something I've done on my own time, so I feel like it's not real reflective of what I built. But uh, Twitter is a place for for me to meet people and hopefully uh, connect with uh, some like-minded uh, guys that are interested in what I'm interested in, and I can build a new career. So, so I know that you you, you keep a, keep a close eye on coal and energy prices. Is that right? Yeah, pretty close. I'm not going to tell you I'm 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 the expert around here, but 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 but, 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 but you're the expert on this call. So. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no. So so what's what 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 do you think's happening at the moment? Like we know that you know energy prices are absolutely going through the roof, and that's probably leading yeah. to inflation. Yeah. Do you reckon? Do you reckon there's any end in sight, or are we? Um, you know, here there, there's a lot at play here, but but first I'll kind of start with where we came from and there's been a lack of investment not just in coal but the entire resource industry and this is coming off of the last uh commodity boom we had that really started before the 2008 global financial crisis so we came out of the crisis with a big stimulus and it ramped up um all over again but that stimulus didn't last for too long and prices came down and people had uh, throwing a lot of money at the sector and invested in new mines. And I think just about every major coal producer in North America went bankrupt. So there's been a lack of investment. And then we run into the pandemic and we get the same sort of deal with a lot of stimulus, but the mines weren't there to support the stimulus. Um, so there's a couple ways to look about it. Look at it. It's uh, the lack of investment. And I think the stimulus was way too big. So um, what we have is not just higher prices in coal, but it's just about everything. And the, the energy sector in particular is just real tight. So that's putting pressure on all sorts of, of costs um, across the board. And, you know, who knows where this ends, but it looks like a train wreck to me. In, um, well, well, in in Australia, in, in, I was just going to say in Australia, uh, Yeti, the um, a lot of the banks these days now are, are really shying away from lending towards coal, uh, any new coal stuff. You know, it's, it, uh, there's a there's a group called Adani here that was um, looking to invest heavily into Queensland, and um, and they were, you know they were struggling to get their financing in order because the banks didn't want to be seen to be you know, encouraging that kind of um, industry as, as much as they have in the past. Are, are you seeing the same stuff happening in the States as well with regards to this lack of investment in, in old kind of energy? Is it, is it big, you know, is there funding issues uh, on, on your side of the world as well for these players? Well, you, you know, we have record, record uh, coking coal prices and coking coal is used in steel, but yet we don't have anybody that's uh, investing in coking coal, you know, even with prices today. And, 
Um, you know, there's a couple reasons for that, but, uh, you know, ESG being one of them, I think the boom bust cycle being another and, uh, yeah, it's, it, it just looks like people are afraid to open new minds when they're not sure of, uh, you know, the environment that's going on around them for a number of reasons. All right. Fair enough. All right. No, well, that's, um, it's, it's good to have you on. I think, um, Andrew, Clint's on here as well. I was wondering if he, he might have some queries for us as well, do you think? Clint's, Clint, Clint probably isn't allowed to speak because of the ABC's rules. Uh, really? Do you think he, so? He's, 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 uh, he's, he, he's, he always sticks to the rules. We know what Clint's like. <laughs> he's, not, he's, not, he's not putting his hand up. He might just want to be listening in. Possibly, possibly. But uh, look, I think it's like what Yeti was saying about the, the energy prices. Ah, here, here it comes. Oh, fantastic. He's going to come on and talk about, um, if he starts talking about belted Galloways, we have to take him off the, off the mic. Oh, we've got Martin as well. You, you've, got, you've, got to, you've got to unmute yourself, though. Hi. Good afternoon. Does that work? Hi, uh, Clint. I can't hear a thing. Yeah, yeah, you're both on. I was just wondering, um, especially with Yeti's unique experience at Bear Stearns, um, all of this inflation in the commodity prices and um, in shipping as well, and now with the prospect of some slightly raising interest rates, which could, could cause a, lot, a bit of stress for a lot of people, can you see any similarities to um, where we were just before the GFC back in 07, early 08, or is that... Um, making too serious a comparison. Clint, I, I missed the last part of your question, but I got the first part, so I'll start with the first part, and and then if I miss anything, I'll I'll, I'll go back to you on the last part. So, yeah, no, uh, I think there's a lot of interesting dynamics between now and back then, but we're clearly in different a different time period. I'd say the difference. Um, the, the big difference I would point out was prior to the global financial crisis, China was industrializing and building these massive ghost cities that we've all heard of, uh, building out the infrastructure. Uh, so it was a much more demand driven market, uh, than we have today. Today is, today is a stimulus driven market, which is demand in a sense, uh, but the supply is curtailed back that's really exacerbating the prices today. Um, back then, you had a lot of new mines opening, but yet you still had high prices because of the high demand. So it was a really bullish dynamic, and it lasted for a number of years. But what we have today in a number of resources, you have an even tighter market than existed back then because the stimulus was so strong. And then there was a lack of supply. So I think the key takeaway here is when you distort free markets and it was going on back then, we had low interest rates back then. And then we had China uh, building out the infrastructure in non-free market ways, which was the ghost cities, um, the government spending. So, so China knows one thing. They know how to spend money to drive the economy through fixed asset investment. Well, today they've, they've, they've built out the fixed assets and they have um, issues with the property sector. Everybody's read about Evergrande or heard of it. And so it's a bit of a different dynamic. And I really question whether this commodity cycle can hold up for long because the demand structurally really isn't there. It's already been built out 
And I don't know that there's really anybody that can, in the near term, step into China's shoes to push the needle forward. That said, I still think we have high prices um, for some time to come until it derails the economy. I'm a, I'm a big believer that the 2008 financial crisis was caused by those distorted free markets that drove the resources um, so high that that it, it eventually had to slow things down. Okay, so it was a number of things that caused the problem, and people will point at mortgage rates. But you know, when you're when you're looking at $140 oil and $4 gas, the average guy in America couldn't really afford that in the mortgage he took on. So something had to give. And eventually the mortgage gave. So it's the old saying, Yeti, high prices is the cure for high prices. That's right. And, yeah. and vice versa. Yeah, definitely. So, so, so yeah, I mean, so today it's just more of a, I think, stimulus driven lack of investment. And I, you know, I hope I answered your, your question there. That's in a nutshell. If you have any further questions, I'd be happy to, to uh, answer those. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. I'll pass them to Martin. Yeah right, Martin. Did you um, did you have something you want to add? Uh, no, not 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 really to to that. I, I such well, intelligent I, minds. I don't have much of a contribution. I, I was wanted to get you on to tell us what's happening in your neck of the woods. We've got we've got seeding approaching. Uh, so Mark, so if you're give listening, us a, yeah, give, give us a run on who, who you are first, yeah, and, and what's happening in your area. Yeah, so I'm up at. Uh, in Varel, Delunga area. Um, we've got a relatively small farm there, 240-odd hectares of cropping with a bit of cattle on the side. Uh, and to be honest, things are starting to hay off now, but up until, yeah, just recently, it's been looking quite good. There's a lot of sorghum around that would have to go at least five, six tonne. Uh, now one fellow that was pulling off two and a half tonne mung beans, so he's won the lottery. Um, and yeah, I, I look, the profiles are full. We'll be looking in for a pretty another, another good winter crop, I'd say. Yeah, because that's that's the thing. Like, nowadays, like, I'm not, a, I'm not an agronomist, so I don't, I'll, I'll probably talk a lot of nonsense, but like, a lot of the crops in recent times have been made by the early sort of summer rains. And like, if you look at some of those areas, like South Australia, we've got We've got tea ports on from uh, the Air Peninsula. They've had uh, massive rainfall. Like Victoria's had pretty big rainfall overall, and big parts of New South Wales. So you, you'd have to think that we we're set for an average year at this point for the winter crop. Yeah, it's not. We're, yeah, we're, we're, for at least you know three ton wheat if it's a dry winter, just from the moisture we've got in the ground. What about, like, we spoke a bit earlier on about uh, fertilizer and input costs. Is that making any difference to what you guys do or just carry on as per normal? Yeah, well, I don't have any uh, pig farms near me, but we do have a few feedlots. <laughs> um, <laughs> my current strategy is I am I am backing off on the starter, not, not cutting it out completely, but reducing the rate and trying to supplement that with manure. On top of that, I, I think manure is just good in general. It's, excuse the pun, but it is good shit. It, <laughs> it punches above its weight in terms of nutrition, particularly when you, you, know, you consider you only get about 
30% of that total nutrition in a season. Um, so I have backed that off. I am backing off the, the urea, but, you know, that's it's all been carefully balanced. We're soil testing and we're, um, we're exploring all of our options. Yeah, Martin, are you doing any more in the way of kind of, you know, test more testing to see what you need to use, where you need to use it, so you can kind of, you know, economise on, on your amounts? Is, is any of that going on as well? Yeah, so, look, um, you know, the, the mechanic's always got the worst car, so traditionally I've probably just soil tested, you know, one block at, as per the rotation and just, you know, every paddock's treated the same as per uh, that, that block that's in the rotation. And um, but no, this year we're, we're soil testing everything, getting exact numbers, and yeah, uh, going from there, treating everything differently, just trying to get, I guess, best performance and tinker with those numbers to make it as profitable as we can. So this year, yeah, we, we've is this year the worst year that you could have high fertilizer prices because you've had two big crops sucking out the nutrients in in twenty twenty yeah. and twenty twenty one. Yeah, in a way. So if it was, you know, if 2020 inputs were through the roof, it probably wouldn't matter so much because you're coming out of a drought. You've got a lot of N already mineralised. Um, but as you say, two big crops just sucking everything out. You've got to feed it. You've got to put it back in. So it is a, um, yeah, it's a nerve-wracking situation. Yeah, well, that's, that's farming, isn't it? You know, that's it. Hopefully, hopefully, you don't get any sort of you know weather modification. You know, changing the uh, <laughs> change, ch- changing the rainfall over your area. Mm. Uh, yeah, no, the um, the machines I think are gone quiet. Have they? Um, well, they seem to have done over the last over the last two years. They seem to have gone quiet. Mm. Oh, government. Yeah, okay. it That's why. That's why it makes it hard for the, the likes of the Bureau and other independent forecasters to get a good gauge on what's going on with rainfall, Andrew, because of those um, secret machines that are controlling the weather. Yeah, it's all, it's all part of the Great Reset, apparently, so I'm told. So, 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 so some, some, some would say. So, Martin, what else is going on? So, have you got mung beans in as well? Yeah, I do. I do. I, I rolled the dice on them. Um full profile behind the barley so we we rolled the dice and it's it's been a cool summer so they haven't grown as much as they should and um, yeah it's, it's sending me gray but we'll see what happens what's the uh, what's what's the market for mung beans at the moment like it's not one i look at but what what, what is oh, the pricing a, level it's about standard um your, your top grades 1300 and then less a hundred bucks for every grade below that which is sort of about where it sits until everyone starts growing them yeah <laughs> right oh after harvest i didn't catch that that last bit martin oh i said yeah, when they all grow them, when they've got full profile straight after harvest. Ah, okay. What's um, what's Kenneth doing, and 
What do you think the Durham market will do? That's always a good one, Andrew. Durham, that's one of your favourite niche markets, isn't it? Oh, I don't really look at that much, but uh, Durham will do what it's doing. Uh, a good person to speak about, it would be, I'll send an invite, I think I already have, to, uh, to Stefan. Stefan Meyer from FC Stone. He uh, he's on. He's listening just now. He might be able to give us a bit of insight into Durham. I know he's uh, he's the uh, the main man when it comes to physical grain in Australia. Uh, but look, I think look, we've seen last year. We we saw last season. We saw Canada having a a pretty terrible crop, and that obviously took away a big chunk of uh, Durham supply uh, around the world, and and that's helped help Durham prices. And I think obviously it hinges upon upon that this year. And I think from what we're hearing is uh, the moisture profile is probably not great in Canada, but I'm a bit sceptical because it's still pretty early days, still plenty of water to go under the bridge, so to speak. So, look, it's uh, it's hard to sort of uh, hard to put a sort of a figure on it at the moment because I don't really, again, like I said, I don't really cover Durham all that much because it is just you know, still a relatively sort of a niche product, so to speak. The data is always a bit of an issue, isn't it? For, from our perspective, it's, um, it's one of those ones that you struggle to get the, um, the hard stuff on. Yeah. Well, that's, it's the same with a lot of commodities, like even, even mung beans, like interesting of mung beans, they're not reported on even in terms of the production by a bears They're I think they're just plugged under other pulses. Mm. And so, I, it, it is, is a case of if you, if you don't have the data, you can't really speak about it. And that's what we tend to stick to is, uh, is, is, is data. And, uh, and, and Durham's not easy to get data on. Um, and I think like a lot of Durham seems to go through uh, uh, contracts as well. So I think... Jonathan Dyer's on, on on the call here as well, uh, listening, and he's he's heavily involved in, in that space and in the uh, in the Durham Growers Association. I'm pretty sure, uh, but who knows? Mm. <laughs> Better than the normal one, isn't it? What's that? It's a bit harder. You feel like you're t- you feel more because you're not seeing each other. You sort of kind of talking to yourself yeah yeah no that's right i mean once uh, i guess the the aspect of what we're trying to achieve though is that we we do that little update and then um encourage as many people as possible to to engage and ask a question and you know wherever wherever i guess it's the listeners that we are hoping to um to get them to to take us in the directions they want to go in terms of there's anything, well, well, anything we've, burning they want to know we've got a i think a Yeti just put his hand up, mm-hmm. so I think he's just going to yeah. put himself off mute. Yeah, so so when you guys go to grocery stores, are you seeing empty shelves? Are you seeing the meat section empty? What's it look like down there? All the toilet roll is gone. <laughs> For Australians, we don't care about meat. We don't care about dairy products. Straight to the toilet roll. Well, there were there were there were some issues with other products um, in areas like with the when we had the um, the Sturt Highway cut off with floods in South Australia, um, some of the more remote communities were struggling big time to get any products in. So there was quite 
Um, some pretty pretty shocking imagery of of nothing on the shelves at all, let alone not just toilet paper, but you're talking you know essentials like uh, fresh fruit and veg and and meat and everything. But that that was probably just an isolated incident because of the level of flooding flooding that was seen. Um, I feel, but I think I do think we have had sporadic shortages of of products, like mm. at certain times when new lockdowns occur and and whatnot. But I think at the moment everything seems to have settled back to. Normality. Our, our coals ran out of toilet paper, obviously, uh, last week, uh, and some meat products, but by and large, just normal. There's one thing in terms of the meat products, Andrew, when, when it does go, whether it's a, a COVID rush or whether it's a supply chain issue, I do notice that there is one apparent so-called meat product that's, that's pretty much always on the shelves. Yeah, for meat. <laughs> And I think that's well. That's, that's an interesting one because we've been told for years that that is the future. Fake meat is going to take over, blah blah blah. But then you sort of look at the sales on on the on the shelves, and I think it's a case of people trying it once and then not trying it again. Like we we tried it once, and it's not it's not terrible, mm. but it does it doesn't meet the required standards of of natural meat. Uh, but then again, you can look at you know beyond meat's share price. And it's back to sort of pre or, or, or below IPO levels. Mm. So clearly, investors aren't all that impressed with it either. Mm. So, so we got we got Jonathan Dyer. He, he requests to come on. So he just oh, needs yeah. to unmute himself. And uh, he's going to give us a scoop on Durham, is he? Durham. He, well, Ju Jono is uh, he's a distinguished fellow of the Nuffield. Ah, okay. Uh, so she will know everything. He's going to bring some um, gravitas to the to the discussion. He's, 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 pro he's probably sitting there in his tractor wearing his Nuffield tie just now. <laughs> we do like to dress well. Well, it's it's, it's the Masonics of agriculture. Uh, I hope not. But anyway, yeah, and no, I just buzzed in because you were talking about Durham and um, yeah. So, um, gents, the. Uh, trying to remember back to a, a forum I went to a couple of years ago. So Australia only produces an exportable surplus of Durham on average every other year. Yep. Um, so well, the year we've just had no doubt was one of them. Um, so for any uh, I know a couple of my neighbours um, so we're just a little pocket of Durham I guess growing here in the West River of Victoria and in the southeast of South Australia. Um the larger Durham areas are in the mid-north and um, yeah over the other um, yeah over the Riverina way where your other uh, people is from so um, but if you've got it and you if you were clever enough not to contract exceeding last year um, the last recent uh, price I heard was $700 uh, Port Adelaide or thereabouts um, so that is huge how um, much jonathan jonathan you just dropped out for a minute there when you when you stated the price i think do you want to just repeat that for us yeah the last one i heard was again this is a few weeks ago now so it's um it's uh, liquidity in, in the durham export games a bit tricky because we as i said the, the market's only there every now and then so the last i heard was 700 uh 700 which is which is which a cracking price, um, you know, unheard of. So, because yeah, it's um, very good, but it's um, interesting to see what's going to happen next year because with the, it's 
probably higher risk than red wheat in our part of the world. So we're thinking about, well, how much do we plant this year? Because we have this carrot of huge prices, but also this this risk of um, the high fur leading to uh, put on these crops. Uh, like the buddy New South Wales, we've had pretty good years the last couple of years. So we've got to try and keep feeding them to keep the yields up. But yeah, that's, that's the risk there, I guess, for us this year. And so, so, you, but you grow that on contract, don't you? Generally, so it's it's uh, that'll be going into San Remo, is it, or someone like that? They're, they're probably the biggest buyer, I think, are they not? Oh, we lost them, I think. Yeah, I think so. He's uh, he's out on. It sounds like in the background, he's out there on the tractor listening in. So it might be a bit patchy wherever he is. We know what it's like out in the in the regional areas for uh, for coverage. But I think it's uh, look, it's a it's an interesting one because I think uh, like the Dura market, you know, it regularly does have those massive premiums. Um, like if you look back, we we do we do have some data, and I just quickly glanced at an article I wrote last year, and uh, like it does have substantial premiums over APW regularly, and probably regularly enough to make it worthwhile. But I guess it comes what it comes down to is uh, when you. Uh, when something gets too attractive, too many people get involved in it. Too too many people jump on it. Mm. Thank you again, gents. Not sure what happened there. Nah, it's all right. And uh, John, are you you still you were you you were putting some canola this year as well? Yeah, but that's got the same problem as Durham because it's a high input crop. So um, they're the two, I guess. Is that? Same thing, it's a high-input crop, got to heap, put, throw out heaps of urea on it to get it to yield any good. So, it's a, yeah, it's a bit of a, a questionable one. Um, uh, the rewards are there at the moment, you know, with current pricing, so it's worth chasing on today's numbers, but you guys are the experts, gents. Are they still going to be there come November? Well, well, that's 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 the question that is... Uh, the answer is the difficult thing, is the fact of the matter is that there's... Uh, there's not necessarily a, a huge correlation between high. I'll just put you on mute, Jonathan, because so I can. Yeah, the background, the background noise, the tractor keeps cutting in over yep. the top of. That's cool. So, but that's one of the issues that we have in, in agriculture. The, the theory is that high fertilizer prices should lead to higher grain prices, and it doesn't always actually marry up with that. Uh, or at least it doesn't for Australia because of the timing of our crop. And that's the biggest issue we have. And we had those really sort of high prices in uh, 2008 or 2007, whenever it was, uh, during, during the time that farmers in Australia were paying for that fertilizer, so you know, January through February. And, and the grain prices were high then. But by the time that we came to actually harvest, the grain prices had lost a lot of uh, that... Uh, a lot of that pricing level and and i think that's 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 the, the key thing is you know when you're looking at the price just now that's available for next year unless you're locking in some of that it's it's largely irrelevant because that that price of course you know that price for for next harvest you know this five and six let's say it's four hundred dollars a ton it could in theory go down a uh, hundred dollars if all going well the northern hemisphere has a big crop then it will could could crash Conversely, it, it could go up, and it, that sounds like fence setting, but that's just looking at back at 
previous history or previous seasons is that it's too early in the year to, to marry up uh, what's actually going to happen because there's too much time uh, between now and then. I think, though, like, like we said earlier on in the call, I think things are relatively well supported this year because of the fact that we have, uh, you know, a decent sort of a, uh, a, a decent situation where, you know, the stocks of the global exporters are, are pretty low. We've got good demand coming out of China uh, as, as well, which is which is pumping everything up. Uh, so, you know, I think we're, we're we're well supported. But I guess the, the key thing is is uh, if you really want to lock in a margin, the only way you can do that is by locking away some some pricing, and and that does involve a bit of risk because you've got obviously that production risk that is still obviously front of mind uh, in Australia as a farmer. It's, uh, Andrew, um, I just noticed Stefan has has uh, come on. You were querying him before, I think, on what his oh, thoughts yeah. were around that around that Durham space. So he may be able to give um, give a bit of shed some light on that as well. Yeah, so Stefan, you have to unmute yourself, but tell us a bit about uh, give us an intro onto to who you are. Everyone knows you anyway, but some people might not. Uh, can you hear me or no? Yeah, yep, yep, we can yep. hear you now. Oh, Andrew, I was just happy. Uh, Listening in, actually, I uh, I like to be the fly in the wall in the markets. Nah, mate, you don't get away that easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think uh, yeah, well, because because there's so much shit spoken, I think we do attract the odd fly here and there. But um, unfortunately, we've asked you to come and speak. The, the most knowledgeable guy in this chat is my friend Josh, who uh, is on this chat as well. And uh, yeah, he knows me. He does extremely good balance sheets, so he'd be the best. But uh, Look, uh, I think the Durham crop this year, north to south quality, has been extremely variable. And, you know, I think the global Durham market, as you're probably aware of, has come off about 100 bucks a tonne globally in the last month. Um, and I think that the buyers into Italy uh, so far have been a little bit concerned with our quality results from Australia so far. Last year, as an example, we had beautiful Durham. We had a beautiful harvest. And the quality was exceptional. You know, they bought DR1, but they really got DR14. Um, yeah, really good quality Durham. So this year, uh, the, the Durham, it might be DR1, but it's DR1 with problems. Uh, black tipping, falling number issues, test weight issues, protein issues. Um, yeah, so I think, uh, you know, I think Australia with its quality issues probably needs to focus less on premium markets like Italy and more so on those North African markets um, like Algeria, Morocco. Um, but yeah, look, I think as mark people in the market, grain markets business, we're trying to find markets for the Durham that, you know, uh, the farmers of Australia gave us and we're trying to find the best homes. And um, yeah, we're working on that every day. So and, that, uh, and, that, and that, that quality was obviously a result of the uh, the poor harvest, the wet conditions. Yeah, 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 it was. And oddly enough, though, there is actually some bloody good Durham out there as well. So it's just not like last year. Last year, I would say, you know, 90% of the crop was DR1. It was Durham with exceptional vitreous. And this year's Durham, you know, um, I'm always working on Durham every day, but it's it's kind of a different market. It's not as it's not as exciting. Um, 
My one comment on the Durham market for, for the Australians is, and I got my little pet peeve, is that we trade Durham on Australian standards with Australian chemical residues. And the farmers of Australia should be, when they're growing Durham, should be targeting European chemical standards. It's, it's a huge issue for me, actually, that we are growing products here which are not the chemical standards for our customers, which is a bit of a nuisance. Uh, and that's one of the issues I continually, continuously see um, on Durham. So I, I shouldn't really talk about Durham. So uh, that's all from me. Bye. What, 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 are you still there, Stefan? Yeah, he's what? still there. What are you here on, on the general sort of uh, grower selling and whatnot? You, you obviously deal a lot with the, the physical trade. Are you starting to see uh, a, a lot more volume coming through now? Are, are, are growers, in your view, sort of heavily sold at the moment? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't actually say that. Because the problem with this whole Durham market has been is that the big traditional Durham traders have, you know, they want to trade vanilla Durham. They want to trade DR1, DR2. They want to keep it simple, right? But the problem is this year's prof quality profile, the crop, isn't vanilla. And up until this, you know, there's still farmers harvesting wheat in southern New South Wales. So people are just now starting to realize what we have. You know, they're going through their spreadsheets. They're sending samples. You know, guys, are, so my guys are sending samples off every day for Durham uh, for testing. And I think now we're finally realizing what we have. One thing I've learned about Durham is never rush into a trade with Durham until you know what you have. Um, there's nothing worse than trying to wash out a grower on Durham. One is an example when there's actually no way to price DR1. Yeah, so, yeah, hmm. yeah. So you've got a, you've got a market that's a liquid and washing out is an absolute nightmare. So, what's the a quick one? I'll, I'll, not a, not about your work, but obviously you're a, you're a, you're you're a Canadian, and uh, what and you your family's got farming land back back home. What what are, what is the outlook there at the moment? How's how are things looking over there? What's the general we're, feeling? We're we're fortunate. We've got uh, we had very good snow cover up until probably today. I think uh, Grand Prairie, Northern Peace Country, temperatures went above ten degrees Celsius which is actually not good for this time of year. We want our winter wheat, which is below... Winter wheat is planted in September, October, and then uh, get, germinates, gets to the three-leaf stage. Uh, then what should happen is snow falls on the wheat plant, and then the wheat undergoes a thing called dormancy and vernalization, which is very important. Um, and then it should be dormant up until probably mid-April. That's what should happen. But then what's happening now is if it gets, you know, like just looking at the temperature gauge here in Grand Prairie right now, it's seven degrees today in Grand Prairie during the daytime, and then it drops to minus nine at night. So what happens is you don't want the wheat to be going between alive and dead. You just want it to be dormant up until April. And so what happens is here, the temperature goes above, water melts above zero degrees Celsius in Canada. And so what happens is when, when it gets too warm, the plant thinks it's spring. It's, it's a false spring. And so then what happens is if the snow melts, the plant then wants to come out of dormancy and it thinks it needs to start growing. But then obviously what happens is it goes to minus 10 at night and it kills it. And that's, that's how winter kill happens. So what we do, don't want is warm temperatures. We either want to be winter, minus, you know, minus 1 to minus 50 all winter 
and then for it to melt in April, a nice slow melt in April, that's what we want. But look, I think I think at the moment Canada needs a good crop. We 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 deserve it. Uh, we got bills to pay. We luckily just broke even last year with the canola twenty dollars uh, a bushel. Um, but yeah, it's, finances are very challenging in farming businesses at the moment. Um, I mean, we needed the twenty dollars a bushel canola. Um, yeah, that's all. So a couple of challenges ahead, but we but still you still think consider it to be too early to say really. The what, Andrew? What you you still consider it to be a bit too early to say at the moment? Oh terms. yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's like when when people in other parts of the world talk about an, a drought in Western Australia in January. I always have to laugh. I'm like, what's, <laughs> who cares about the drought in January in WA? Well, it's, it's, that's it's, what people. It's the same thing right now. Northern Hemisphere uh, is irrelevant between, I would say, you know, December to March. the end of March. Yeah, yeah, yeah and that's that's when things start to get crazy or or exciting, depending on what you your viewpoint is. But I think it's like it is always the case that you know. Everyone gets excited at this time of the year when they see it's a bit drier. There's a little bit of a, a bit of a cold snap, you know, a polar vortex, whatever. You know, we always get that every couple of years, and uh, it still never seems to really have a huge impact overall in the end. A bit like I guess Western Australia. There was a lot of talk about uh, we had a frost this year in September, and there's a lot of talk about how much damage had come out of the crop. And then, it, you know, we all know that it, it tends to be sort of. Uh, you know, relatively uh, um, mixed in terms of the impact, and then we go on to create a you know record crop. So, I think Martin uh, was had his hand up as well. Yeah, Stefan, I've just got a question for you. There, you said you test over the, um, residual issues with the EU and our program. What are those issues? Oh, well, I mean, if you look at the European chemical, if you sell a bulk vessel into Europe, you got to follow European chemical standards. You don't follow Australian chemical standards is not what the customer wants. You know, we've got issues into places like Taiwan and Thailand, too, on bread wheat. But I know this conversation is more about Durham. But uh, some of the issues I've seen over the years is that um, especially some of these people growing summer and winter crops side by side, you know, you got glyphosate levels showing up in Durham. That's a bit of an issue. Uh, I don't really want to talk about specifics because it was stressful for me. Um, but yeah, I don't like when... F what often happens is maybe the agronomist doesn't know what markets they're targeting. Yeah, the agro... You know, the agro might be following withholding periods for Australian rules and Australian MRLs. And then all of a sudden, when the sample gets to Europe, it's like, whoa, hold on here. You know, um, 50,000 ton vessel with a certain chemical, yeah, being rejected. So um, I think I think that's something the Grain Trade Australia, you know, the, the industry body needs to do a better job of uh, with the chemicals, chemical issues. That's... Um, I guess that, that's, it, it comes down to we've got, if we've got chemical residue limits, MRLs that are that are too lax in comparison to the customer, at the end of the day, it comes back to that old saying: the customer is always right. And and if and if those are the levels that they want, and it's and it's only going to get worse anyway. 
in, in terms of we've got the uh, the green diplomacy uh, rulings coming out in, in Europe. You know, MRLs are going to get more restrictive into Europe uh, as time goes on, uh, especially, it, especially for things like glyphosate. Is the, is the average kind of farmer, though, when they're, and particularly for cropping, um, are, they, are they putting the plan in knowing what their end market is for it or are they just, they're just looking to, you know, get a, get a good yield and get a good crop out and, and they're not thinking down the, down the supply chain to where its final destination is, isn't it? They're just, they're just looking to sell it to the, you know, and, and, and keep going on. But you're saying, well, Stefan, that they need to be thinking of that. I think I think you made a really good point. I mean, it's, it's maybe different. Um, you know, fava beans go to Egypt. So we understand that market now. Mm. Uh, but the classic example last year was actually canola. The amount of canola we did to Nepal last year, right? Um, yeah, the farmer probably thinks, "Oh, all my canola is going to Belgium or Europe this year." Mm. And then like, hold on, we're going to some country called Nepal. Don't even know where that is. Oh, it's, you know, they have a shopping center that sells Kathmandu or something. But it's, yeah, I think, I don't know, maybe the, I often think about, I mean, I'm a farmer too. And when I grew up, I used to drive the harvester. And all I worried about was, how's my sample look in the back of my hopper? And it's mm. like, hold on here. I don't know, maybe I think, maybe maybe at university or at high school, there should be a course of like, here's our general customers for Fabus. This is... You know, today, Reza and I uh, had a very amazing meeting. We just finished uh, a faba bean vessel in Adelaide, and we were talking about the different varieties of fabas. You know, the uh, Samiras, the Wardas, the... Um, geez, I, I should know this. Um, um, Nuras, Kairos, uh, Zaras, uh, Dozas, Barkuls, all these different types of fabas. And, you know... I mean, I don't know who's all in this chat, but, you know, us Western kind of white people, um, we don't really know anything about why do our customers like certain type of fabas? And why do they pay a premium for certain fabas? You know, it's well, like the Desi versus the Kabuli. It's yes, like the Pinot Noir yeah. versus the Shiraz. I yeah, mean, yeah. I understand the Pinot Shiraz, but I don't know the difference between the Ward and the Samira. Mm. All we all we focus on is on yield and the characteristics of um oh how does it grow in Mori? Not, not we, oh how do we do not how it sells in Egypt or whatnot. That's right. We did have an opening up there, Andrew, for a Hoiberg tangent though with um uh, with Stefan mentioning Nepal, because uh, he said not many people might know where Nepal is, but I know oh, Andrew. He, he Andrew well. knows. Andrew knows where Nepal is. The last time I think you're in Nepal, you're up to your elbows inside a cattle's rectum, were you? That is correct. I uh, you know, probably a bit much information. We seem to be going to tangents about feces quite a lot in this this show. <laughs> but uh, I, I spent uh, a week or two in Nepal three years ago. Uh, funded by the World Food Project uh, to to learn about foot and mouth disease. So it's a beautiful country, by the way, Stefan. Uh, <laughs> grows grows massive crops of organic wheat, um, but beautiful country. We've got we've got an, we've got another speaker as well. We've got a uh, Rene. Mm. Rene. Good afternoon, everyone. How are you? 
Um, I'm I'm in central Queensland. I was just going to make a comment on that. So I think it really depends on the relationship that the farmer has with their merchant. So I I know exactly where my, um, you know, my mung beans and cotton or chickpeas are being sold to. And um, we actually have to sign a stat deck on the chemistry that we use, depending on the market that it's going to. Um, And we're we're always told which which things um, have restrictions over them. So I think... I, I wouldn't say it's across the board that people don't know what they shouldn't be using because we certainly do know what we can and can't use. Um, and uh, the cotton that we've got here, it's um, we opt in to be BCI, um, BMP accredited, and then it goes into the BCI, the Better Cotton Initiative market. And, you know, there's a lot of restrictions on the types of um, chemistry that can be used. And also there's fertiliser allocation. So, um you know, we have to meet the guidelines on how much nutrients goes onto that crop as well. So I think it it really depends on the crops you're growing and, um, you know, that relationship and whether it's a certified crop or whether it's not. And yeah. But but, but, but cotton is quite a closed loop sort of a system, isn't it? It's like it's, it's you, you deal quite directly with the, the merchant who's buying it from you. Whereas, yeah, but whereas probably. The- the lint, the the um the pulses are very similar though. Like we we know exactly sort of where you know because they're high value too. You know, mm. um so we know exactly where the market that it's going into, and I know you know which chemistry I can and can't use, and the withholding periods for that particular market. Um, yeah. Uh, what at the moment, Rennie? You're a big a big cotton grower. What's the uh, what's the feeling with the oh. cotton growers at the moment? Pretty happy. Uh, very tiny cotton grow, grower here this year. Uh, so we're still on um, allocation restrictions here. So it's just been bumped up. I've only got 203 hectares in. So very, very tiny little area um, this year. And um, there's mung beans being planted as we speak um, this week, which is pretty exciting. It's a really good market price at the moment. It's $1,350 uh, a tonne. And it's actually going into China. It's one of the commodities that they haven't um Put a block on, which is pretty cool. But cotton prices are good as well at the moment, are they not? Yeah, yeah, they are. So um, I've um, pre-sold some at um, around the $830, $850 mark per bale. Yeah. Which which, I, which, I, which, which, really, which really top end of the range for recent years. Absolutely, yep. It hasn't sort of been above that eight, uh, sorry, five, 550 sort of for quite a while. Um this so i've done something i've never done before it's december planted cotton um the the yield is restricted due to season length and um, radiation so we're just about to head into our what are considered the the highest uh, sorry the higher rainfall months so it's low radiation um so the the nutrient requirement has been a big consideration so it's not as you know we've really restricted that based on the expected yield on what would be a normal um like a good season um so and also with high prices and um limited water availability and sort of that putting a yield cap of about 10 bales so um reduced input crop i would call it renee um it'd be, probably be remiss of us not to mention um your state your status amongst um the cropping industry in australia because um because you're because you're, you're in a field as well 
well, not yeah. Uh, yeah, part of the secret, um, the secret squirrel establishment with the. Um, <laughs> but but this year you were nomin- you, you you were on a very short list of um, influential people within the cropping sector. Um, I know there was someone else on this um, on this podcast that was a bit disappointed they didn't they didn't get a mention. But um, congratulations on being acknowledged in such a auspicious list. Oh, thank you. I, I have no idea how they picked that list. Um, and, yeah, there was a lots of um, really um, important people. And so, yeah, it was definitely a, a big surprise to um, be put on a list like that. Yeah. There's a lot of people that do really amazing um, work that were on that list. Mm, no, it was, it was a good list to be amongst. And, um, like I said, there was someone I knew that I think he cried for weeks. Um <laughs> Poor Andrew. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm just looking for. I'm just. I think it was actually Costa from uh, Grain Growers who was uh, who, who was the one that was disappointed. But the, 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 on on a serious note, uh, one fiber prices look pretty well supported. Like we we did a bit of analysis, um, looking at some of the possible lead indicators, and and when we look at things like copper. And, and cotton and, and Chinese bonds, they're pretty good indicators of future uh, growth. And future economic growth is always corresponded quite well with uh, higher purchases of, of fibres, which is good. So in theory, it's, it's pretty good for the coming year as well. So hopefully, yeah, definitely. Hopefully. And I and think you- Australian cotton, um, you know, we're very well respected um, and the environmental credentials that sort of are backed up now with the the research from CRDC and um, the universities has really um, strengthened our market. And we've got retailers and brand names who are now specifically purchasing Australian cotton. Um, we're about to do a massive big launch next week with Cotton On and their their um, entire children's range is all Australian cotton and they're just about to um, go through the process of switching everything over to um, Aussie cotton, which is really exciting for growers here. Well, but, but, but shouldn't you be growing hemp? Because <laughs> that is, isn't, isn't cotton taking all of the water out and hemp... <laughs> <laughs> So as as most people will know, so um, the allocation that we receive on the farm doesn't um, get filtered off to the individual crops. So um, we've got a, a bucket of water and just say I've got 100, 100 litres of water is my licence and at the moment I'm on 66% allocation. So I get to choose whatever I do with that water regardless of the type of crop I go, grow, so whether it's the hemp or the cotton, which have very similar water uses. Um, here in CQ, it's actually, we're in that semi-tropical location, so it grows really well here. Um, if I was to grow it sort of out the back of Burke where it's very quite hot and very dry um, and that evapotranspiration rate was a lot higher, it'd use uh, slightly more water. They have very similar root systems, much um, taller crops, so it does use a little bit more fertiliser, but um, but that water allocation would not change regardless of whether I was growing hemp, cotton, mung beans in at the moment, you know, the wheat and chickpeas, um, yeah, it's all the same. I just get to use that one big bucket on whatever I, whatever I get to choose to so, grow. So, so hemp isn't the miracle crop that will save all. 
Um, I'm hoping um, they are working on variety, so um, it it doesn't fit within my rotation at the moment because it's another it it's sort of grown at the same time um, as what I would be growing cotton, and for me, it's an economical sort of choice on why I grew, grow the different crops. I'm quite landlocked here. The farms up in central Queensland are quite small on the irrigation scheme. Um, so it's not only looking at the market value of them, but things like the pest pressure, you know, growing a genetically engineered crop means we, we don't require um, the pesticide, like it's pest and disease resistant. Um, and here we're in a high, very high pest um, pressure region. Um, the other crops in the district are currently being very hammered by sucking pests. They're absolutely everywhere. And hemp is very susceptible to the conventional cotton pests that would normally um, not have that built in, um, those built in proteins that are protecting it. So there's added extra input costs that um, make it a little less desirable for me at the moment as a, a choice of crop. What would the – you mentioned it's a genetically modified crop, yeah? Yeah, yep, the cotton, not the so, hemp. But most of the most of the, uh, most of the cotton in Australia is genetically modified? 99.9% genetic of it is genetically engineered. We do have um, trap crops and refuge crops, and there's some growers, so I grow pigeon pea is my trap and refuge crop. So we grow that to um, basically be like a uh, like a nursery for the helicoverpa caterpillar. And there's some growers that choose to grow conventional cotton as their um, refuge and trap crops so that there's a dilution factor with the, the caterpillars and the moths that are moving out of that crop, if there was any survivors in the genetic, genetically engineered varieties coming out, um, if there was any pupae that um, managed to emerge, um, it's like a dilution factor. So there is a tiny bit of conventional around. There's not a lot. Um, it generally doesn't get harvested because there's they're usually nothing on it um, at by the end of the season. Um, yeah, because the caterpillars absolutely love it. So in terms of in terms of the like, a, we see, I see a lot in stores and stuff. You know, organic cotton. Yeah, so it must mm -hmm. be. So it's rare in Australia. So where, whereabouts does organic cotton come from? Do you know? Yeah, so, yeah, yep. Yeah. So organic cotton um, only makes up one percent of the world's cotton. Um, there's a little bit that comes out of um, the US. There's this magical little pocket, Golden Triangle, where, you know, beautiful weather, very low pest um, region, so they're able to grow it with very little inputs. Um, and the rest of it is grown in India or Pakistan. There has been some fairly significant fraud issues. I don't know if you remember last year and the year before. Um, there was a lot more organic cotton sold than actually grown. Um, and there was a lot of fraudulent certification, which was very big news in the, um, the textile industry. Um, so we're now going down the route of traceability so that we know, you know, the varieties that were grown on the farm. And then it's um, genetically encoded or sprayed um, so that there's full traceability right through to the garment. Renee, um, from from a like obviously the the organic and it's certified, and if it, the, the, you know the traceability is there, I imagine there's a premium attached, which is why the reason for the for the attempts of frauds. But what's the what's the from the consumer or the end purchaser perspective? 
in that organic space, what are the what are they are they buying it for just because they're wanting organic, or are there other attributes to organic cotton that make it desirable? Softer. Um, so some of the they quite often are growing very different varieties to to what we grow here in Australia. Um, so they're um, a long staple fibre, so and which are finer, um, much more softer to wear. Um, they are much harder to grow, which is why uh, the US and Australia and Brazil quite often don't grow them, but they are like a niche variety. Um, we have grown them here in Australia. We've got one farm, Australian super cotton, that grows a semi-long semi variety. Um, and I, but I do think, I think they're going out of it because the, the, um, the genetic, um, the plant breeders have stopped making that particular variety. It is very difficult to get a decent yield out of those varieties. Um, but yeah, the, those high-end business shirts are quite often a long staple fibre. Um, they are very soft. They're almost like a silk to wear. So they are beautiful. The, there is some marketing, um, you know, marketing spin with organic. So low inputs is one of the things that they do say. The benefits of growing a ge genetically engineered variety is, um, you know, we do have very, very low um, pesticide use, which is something to be to be proud of. Um, and I think a lot of people don't realise that organic doesn't mean pesticide-free. It just means non-synthetic um, chemicals are used. So they're, they're still applying chemistry. It's just a different form. One of the things that... You know, I have worked as an agronomist for a really long time and one thing that I um, really struggle with, some of the pesticides that they do use, they're very broad spectrum. So um, for us, the beneficial insects that we have on, on farm and we, you know, we try and build up through the season, those broad spectrum um, organic ones will just basically take out all of the insects, they're not target specific. So, you know, we can really target for a particular caterpillar or a particular sucking pest and still leave the lady beetles, the spiders, the lacewings. Um, they don't have the option with the type of chemistry that they do use. Um, it's just um, that they're non-synthetics. So Australia produces white cotton, yeah? Um, yeah, it's a little bit creamy. It's not pure white. So that makes creamy T-shirts and white T-shirts. But where do you get the cotton for, like, blue T-shirts and black T-shirts? <laughs> um, so they are dyed. Um, there is natural coloured cotton, though, and we did have some growers on the downs who were growing naturally coloured cotton. So it comes in about 12 different colours. Um, there is some growing in the US and India, Pakistan. Um, I don't think Brazil's doing coloured cotton anymore. But the blues, the blacks, um, your really bright colours are all um, dyed. And they've changed the process of that, thank goodness. It was probably one of the highest environmental impacts um, in the textile industry was from that dyeing, that dyeing process. Um, it's now a closed-loop system. Um, so they've really changed how they've, you know, how things used to be done. So one of the things, Rennie, obviously... You could say that you're in the cotton industry, but you're not. You're in the fashion industry, yeah? <laughs> Definitely really. in the fashion industry, yes. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things that always concerns me about fashion is this sort of fast fashion. Yeah. With, um, you know, there's a lot of environmental sort of issues. And, and we've got Oscar Pierce on the call. I've sent an invite out to him, if, see if he accepts it. Um, but... You know, we see, like, I watched a documentary, uh, one of the ABC ones recently, about, like, fast fashion and huge piles of clothing 
you know, just littering the, you know, the dumps of, of Africa. Yep. Do, you um, know, over, to, to, there's two sort of ways to look at it. To an extent, that is good for the cotton industry because it means that there's huge demand because we're changing fashions every year. But obviously, it's not necessarily all that great for the environment. Like I know, like I know cotton farmers are doing fantastic work in being, uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, yeah, stewards, good stewards. Stewards, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, um, what, what about downstream? Is yeah, so where, where we place ourselves in the market is not at that lower end. So quite often, um, other countries will will purchase Australian cotton because it is really high quality and they'll do blends. So as as an industry, we are really looking at not fast fashion. We're looking for high quality clothing um, with durability. So buy less um, and that is going to last. Like buy good quality less often um, that you will have for a lifetime. Um, and w- the aim is to get more people to really consider where they're spending their money on their clothing um, so they're not buying those really cheap shirts that are just going to last one season. We'd rather you spend a little bit more, ensure that you've got it for a couple of years. And, like, I really love clothing, but I'm very select on what I do buy uh, a couple of pieces each year. Most of the things I've had in my wardrobe are decades old and I bring them out sort of, yeah, um, semi-regularly. So that's the that's the position that we're taking. We We do have things in that... You know, we do have things in those really big stores like H&M, Cotton On, Big W, to to ensure that general consumers are getting, are purchasing um, cotton that's grown under a higher standard um, and hopefully lasts a little bit longer than just one season. But I I certainly have um, massive issues with the fast fashion um, cycle what I guess the benefit of cotton is it's um, compostable, unlike those synthetics or semi-synthetics, which can possibly be biodegra- biodegradable, but it's leaving behind um, micro- microplastics. Um, compostable fibres, natural fibres like wool, silk, cotton, flax, um, they are being completely broken down. But in terms of, if you think about it as a, as a sort of a, a list of it, like merino is obviously higher valued than, than cotton, mm. then cotton, then probably, cotton's probably competing at times with synthetics more so than, say, wool would be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, quite different markets. Where, um, wool isn't a competitor. I wish we would align a lot more and do blends a lot more. I'm, I'm, I'd be, yeah, I think that would be a really great... Um, relationship our biggest competitor is the polyesters and the synthetics from from that perspective though andrew as well that the even though that merino is not really you know you're not in the same market but then from a broader global perspective the use of wool in in into clothing is is kind of into the single percentages you know it's so cotton's probably a much bigger uh, proportion when you're looking at how much of it's used in global fashion compared to wool yeah, we're we're sitting at about twenty six percent, and I think yeah, wool's um, wool's lost a fair bit. Oh, I think it's single digits, they... single digits. So it's probably three or something yeah. percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and our yeah, sixty five percent is polyester. It's it's awful. Mm. 
Mm, that's fast fashion. I might, yeah, and there's, there, it's the same as, as those um, god-awful footwear, the Crocs that are made out of all these kind of, you know. But last, for, but, but last forever. I think we, we do have some fashionable people on the line. We've got, we're, I know that Clint's fashionable, uh, but we've got, uh, Yeri's got a question as well. Yeri, oh, yeah. just, just, just unmute yourself. Yeah, that, that comment basically where those microfibers don't, uh, you know, they leave behind a problem, the plastic and, and whatnot. Is there um, maybe a future where there's legislation comes in and makes that illegal and increases demand for natural fibers? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Like, it's it's like maybe Renee might know more about this, but I think it's probably the future, isn't it? Really, if you if you look at the sort of incrementalism, you've got the uh, uh, you've got sort of plastic straws, you know, toothbrushes all going to sort of bamboo or or cardboard or whatever, and you know the next stage might be you know limits on on the synthetics that are allowed to be used if it's going to cause you know. Um, pollution in the seas. I think there was a report in the ABC this week saying that every Australian consumes one credit card worth of plastic a year. Yeah. Which, so one which, of the... which, which, which in Matt's case, you know, his credit card's always bouncing anyway, so he might be able to... Uh... <laughs> so one of the changes that they are making, uh, which will have a massive impact, so there's around 750,000 microparticles of um, synthetics for every single... Um, clothing washing cycle that we do um, and it, within that is also natural fibers so if you've got your cotton t-shirts and your jeans and stuff that's also in there so one of the things that has um, been implemented for the newer washing machines is they have to have filters which capture that so that it's not being um, released within the the storm water and out the drains and um, so there are there are changes that are occurring that, um, you know, that everyone will soon, that buys a new washing machine will have these filters already installed. Um, the older ones, you can buy the filters to go on them um, and it will certainly make a large difference and, and get those microplastics out of the food chain. They're also, um, I think there's, there's, they're looking at technology to fit to the actual washing machines too to be able to stop it before it gets out of the household. Um, yeah, that's what, that's, that's the filters that's, that I was that's, talking that, about. That's called a filter, Matt. Were you not listening? <laughs> mm -hmm. That's what I was talking about. Yep. Matt, wake, wake up. <laughs> it's how, Friday, Friday how afternoon. Much, how, how, how much have you had to drink? Oh, well, that was the second one I just popped then, so second bottle. So I might have been stepping away to you know get the cork out. Right. Oh, well. I don't know. What, what do we do? We keep going, or we've got any questions from the from the the crowd, the forum, what not? It's been. Yeah, a, it's... I got, Matt, I got one more question for you. Since, since you're in the uh, meat trade and watching that um, in Australia, we talked about pigs today on on a call, and there was some big negative margins going on in Spain and Ireland. Is that also going on in Australia? No, in the pig space or just across the, the meat? Uh, the, 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 the hog space in particular, yeah, the pigs. 
No, um, there, there, there has been some pressure on margin. Uh, we, all, we, we also have to sort of uh, divulge, our, um, divulge our personal interest in that we, we both own a, a, a medium-scale pig farm together. Mm. So, so anything is obviously biased. Mm. Uh, but from that perspective, the um, if you go back a, a, a few years or the last time, I, I suppose we saw some significant increase to grain pricing. Uh, margins in Australia were under more pressure, but um, subsequent to that, we did see um, a recovery in in the price of pigs. So it's kind of this time around, we've seen similar type issues with regard to um, you know. Uh, Feed pricing more from a global perspective, though, um, but the margin uh, the margin pressure hasn't been as great as what it has last time. So I'd say on historically, I'd, I'd suspect that our margins for the pork sector now are, are pretty much close to the average. I don't think they're um, they're not uh, they're not excessive, but they're also not um, too lean at the moment. But the general the general sort of trend for meat overall is still pretty strong, though. Within, uh, within, within Australia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in terms of for the for, for, at the producer end, certainly that um, you yeah, know, and that's that's a factor of the. If you look across the the broader uh, meat uh, you know, meat industry, so including you know red meat and and uh, uh, you know sheep, lamb, cattle, and into you know chicken. I think the the season for the for the red meat producers has been good enough that margins have been maintained obviously with the pricing where it's where it's been um you know like it's like i said before pork i think's probably about average um uh you know the only the only real issue i guess we're seeing here is more you know beyond the farm gate and further down the supply chain i think is where the margin squeezes are coming at the moment um particularly in the processing space so our so our processes here are, uh are particularly for for red meat and beef, um, specifically, uh, having a real tough time at the moment. Uh, in contrast to what's going on over in in the states, yet I think you guys are um, are getting much stronger margins in your processing sector at the moment. Uh, just coming off some record margins from last year, I believe. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't look. I don't follow the meat space nearly as close as y'all would. It's just always been something that's extremely like complicated to ever nail down a direction on what something's gonna do. I couldn't ever figure it out, and I still can't. So I just try to listen to people that are smarter than me on that. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't waste your time listening to Matt then. <laughs> It's more a matter of you know there's there's only so much you can in terms of looking at across commodities there's there's a limited amount of um, you know if you and if you're looking globally as well it, it's you know you have to be incredibly um, uh, you know have an incredibly huge sized brain to be able to cover off on what's going on globally across a, a wide range of commodities that, that aren't um, you know that aren't following in a similar pattern so. You know, you can. There's only so much you can keep an eye on. I think so. You know, even uh, even someone as smart as uh, Andrew can only focus on five or six commodities at once. I think. Not not even that many. <laughs> I can't even. I can't even cover all of wheat. Just I have to get Stefan well, in to talk about. Talk about yeah, well, yeah, well, that's a that's a data issue as well, though, isn't it? <laughs> Um, but yeah, look, I think you know, it's, it's the same reason we get off. We often get asked at, um, at TM, Andrew, why why we don't have a dairy spot on, uh, you know, and it's, it's and that's another market that's incredibly complex. And you know, I think to to do it justice, you've got to 
you know, have a person almost dedicated to it. Um, so, you know, and particularly when, you, when you're looking at the global space, to be able to cover off on so many things, I think you've got to, at, at some stage, you've got to pick your particular preferences and just focus in on those if you want to have a real good grip of what's going on globally. Yeah, yeah, I agree. There's just there's so many moving parts in ag that, um, you know, say you say you just cover wheat and that's what you cover. There's still like so much to learn, and uh, I'm still learning. So here I am. Well, I think the thing with commodity markets is that they're always interesting, and no year is the same. So you're all just picking up bits of information every year and over time. You know, by the time I'm 60, I might know what I'm talking about. Yeah, well, more certainly more, you know, I did the 12 years trading currencies and it's um, it's been um, certainly a much more interesting market to be in, in the agricultural space by a long stretch uh, than, than the time I spent doing currencies. Yeah, so I wonder if we start winding down. I think so. I think, look, it's been, a, it's been a, an a experiment. Wide- yeah, and uh, a wide-ranging discussion on uh, on you know, initially starting with what's going on in those global. We spoke interest rates, we spoke Durham, we spoke cotton. So I don't know what you're going to put as a label on this one. It's certainly one of the longest podcasts we've done. But um, um, you know, th- I think we should thank thank for the uh, thank thanks for the people that have uh, joined uh, both to participate and to listen in. Um, I think we'll probably have another crack at it, Andrew, but we might, um, we might need to maybe set, set some, set some broad topics at the start, or you think we should just go with the flow each time? Well, I just think, I think what we probably need to do is, is actually sink five beers beforehand. (laughs) And, and I, but I think for, for us, it was a case of, uh, well, how does this work? Like we didn't even know how to invite people when we, when we started it. Uh, but it's just a case of of testing out, and like like we say, we we want to we we want to be with the cool kids doing uh, doing spaces and whatnot. Um, I think it'd be interesting to hear what is a good time to do it. Whether we're better off doing it in the evening, uh, but we just thought we'd give it give it a you know a, a red hot go, as they say. And uh, look, it's a different way of doing it, and then we'll we'll plug it out as a as a podcast. And so we can, apparently we can take the recording off of this and uh, turn it into podcast. Uh, whether that works or not is another thing. Hmm. No, that's well, that should be good. And um, like I said, it's been, uh, it's been a learning curve for us. Um, we may need to, we may need to uh, have a time limit on it, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah, but, um, it sort of winds down itself naturally, doesn't it? Hmm. No, that's true. Um, and and uh, usually just when, when dinner is about to be served. <laughs> well, we might. Well, that's other thing too. We might need to think of. Um, I didn't expect to get um, international guests like Eddie on. It was great to have someone from the US on. Um, but we might need to see if there's a particular time that, that suits the majority as well to you know to be able to capture everyone. Yeah, we play. And the good thing about this is that you can uh, you can basically uh, you can do it without much notice. You can just press a button and say let's start a space. Mm. So if some if something happens, you know if China bans, you know, Australian wheat. I'm not saying they're going to do that. Uh, but if they did, you can press a button, start a space, and talk about it instantaneously. Mm. So it's, it's a pretty cool function, and I think you know it's, it's just it's just good to be up with the up with the young kids. 
And uh, and so next week we'll be on TikTok with Clint and Renee. <laughs> well, Clint's the uh, Clint's. The, I'm, not, I'm not sure if we're um, as good as those guys. Um, yeah, we're not. We're not. Maybe you're young enough, but uh, I'd struggle with TikTok. I think, mate. Probably. <laughs> All right. Well, that, I think that might be it. Uh, have a good weekend uh, to everyone, and um, Andrew, we'll see you, mate.